0: Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Welcome back to The Art of Range. My guest today is Jim Gerrish, uh, grazing researcher formerly in Missouri, but who has been in Idaho for a number of years now. Uh, Jim, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Tip. Uh, pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah, I am too. I actually don't have a thorough bio on you, but when I started with WSU Extension, Oh, 20 years ago, we had you in Washington state for a grazing conference and you were coming from Missouri. And I think you'd been there uh, for some time at that point. Uh, But, uh, yeah, talk a bit about the history of how you got into grazing research, because there's not uh, there's not that many people doing this kind of work. And then how did you end up coming to Idaho?
1: Okay, well, that uh, is a long story.
0: We've got plenty of time. Uh,
1: Matter of fact. (laughs) Yeah, to um, how did I get interested in grazing actually goes way back to um, the mid-1970s before I had even thought about, uh, you know, going to graduate school to becoming a professional researcher. It's just um, we had a rancher from Argentina. Who visited us on the farm in Missouri? And I did not grow up in the cattle business. I did not grow up grazing. I grew up with crops and hogs. Uh, We did do custom hay baling, but this rancher from Argentina, you know, he came and talked about moving cattle every day, 100% forage diets. And of course, they didn't say grass fed beef in those days, but that's all Argentina produced was. cattle for slaughter off a of pasture. Mm-hmm. And so he, in, for, he first introduced me to these ideas. And when I did uh, start to graduate school, uh, I went to the University of Kentucky, actually originally on a plant breeding assistantship. Hmm. And I got there and decided that really wasn't what I wanted to do. And they had a new uh, pasture ecology professor there who had just come from New Zealand. And so I ended up being uh, Chuck Dougherty at the University of Kentucky. I was his first American graduate student. And that's what really started me on the path of research and uh, grazing management. And out of grad school, I guess I'm one of the few people can say, um, I only applied for one job. I only had one job interview. And that was the position I went to at the University of Missouri and I was there for uh, just over 22 years and uh, I was not at the Columbia campus. I was at one of the outlying research centers which I saw as a vastly underutilized resource and so we ramped up the research there, got into Uh, more of, you know, at the time we would have called a New Zealand style approach to grazing management rather than the uh, traditional American set stock program. And um, as I said, I was there for 22 years. And then uh, in 2003, uh, at age 47, uh, made the decision to quit the university, go into private business and move out west and the the move to idaho was 100 percent recreational lifestyle move <laughs> uh, there was no motivation you know to be in western ranching to do any of the things that i've done over the almost 20 years now april 1st will have been in idaho for 20 years hmm. um we I, I i moved here so i could hike in the mountains hunting fish and stuff and ended up fell into a deal uh, managing one unit of a larger ranch, the irrigated uh, portion of that ranch, and we, we also uh, had desert rangeland there too. But that's why I learned grazing management um, on center pivots and flood irrigated land. I would say I learned it on side rolls or wheel lines too, but that's my least favorite form of irrigation. So <laughs> I often don't admit mm-hmm. that I, you know, do that. But there in kind of a large nutshell is my story of how I got here. And I should mention the whole time that we, well, almost the entire 20 plus years at the time that we were in Missouri, we had our own uh, grass farm there, started out just on a small acreage, uh, running sheep. And, you know, then we expanded the land base uh, very substantially. And when we had more acres, we ran cattle. So we did cow calf, uh, custom grazing, uh, I said, I've done the sheep. I've even custom, we, I've even custom grazed horses, which you don't find a lot of people doing that. So, um, I've got, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, the academic research experience, uh, a lot of, um, outreach experience from then. And then I've got the practical application both uh, 20 years on a farm in Missouri and almost 20 years on um, irrigated pasture out here in the West.
0: Yeah, I actually grew up in Northern Arkansas, uh, just south of Mountain Home on the White River. I don't know, maybe 40 miles south of the Missouri border. A little bit more trees there. Uh, We only had good grass in a river bottom, but Yep. Uh, similar climate, anyway. What would you say were some of the highlights or interesting research angles that you ended up getting into in Missouri?
1: Okay. Um, I'm going I'm, I'll preface that by saying, when I was at uh, Kentucky and starting because I knew absolutely nothing about grazing, um, I just started pulling shelves off the book or books off the shelves in the library. And the most interesting book that I read was Grass Productivity by Andre Voisin, um, mm-hmm. who and I still consider that the most significant book on grazing management written in the 20th century, uh, because it introduced the whole idea that time management is the key component of grazing management, rather than just uh, stocking rate theory and spatial management, which is what mm-hmm. we were largely taught in the US. Um, and so, Time management, as it relates to grazing, has always been a key part of everything that I have done. Now, from the research standpoint, when I came to University of Missouri, basically my assignment was to make beef cattle competitive with soybeans on marginal rolling land in North Missouri. Mm. And to make it more profitable, we have two sides of an equation we can work with. We have the income side, and we have the cost side. Well, we were at kind of a low point in in 1981 when I arrived in Missouri. um, We were in a low part of the cattle cycle, and so there wasn't a lot we could expect to do on the income side of it. So it was totally related to cost management. And even to this day, if you look at the typical cow-calf budget in almost any state in the U.S., the biggest single line item cost is feed costs. And a big yep. part of that is winter costs. And um, so it made sense to me that what we had to tackle to help profitability was feed costs. And because winter feed tended to be the larger proportion of that, uh, we started almost immediately into more winter grazing work and then just really focused on how do we get more days of grazing in the dormant season, um, and one of the first steps was just feed budgeting rather than turning cows out on you know an eighty acre uh, mm-hmm. pasture of uh, fescue, which is largely what we had in Missouri, and just letting them go at it because that's what they'd been doing there for several years at the research station, and. They'd get 40, 50 uh, cow days or grazing days per acre. When we went to time control management, we quickly got that up to 70, 80, 90. And then we started doing research at how can we do a better job of growing stockpiled pasture. And that put us up to 120, 130 uh, cow days per acre. So we went from it taking three days to graze a cow through the winter, which was completely financially unfeasible to being able to carry a cow through the entire winter on one acre. And it made it a very, very affordable part of winter grazing or of the winter feeding program. And then we figured out that we've got to do a lot better job of grazing management in the summertime to ensure that we had that stockpile opportunity to graze in the winter. So that put us more into uh, tighter and tighter grazing management in the growing season. And then on our own farm, I started. uh, So at the research station through the early to mid 80s, we considered intensive management, you know, moving every Uh, you know, either twice a week or once a week. And then there was a real bad drought in 88. And on, uh, we went to daily strip grazing then just to try to stretch the feed out. And it made such a huge difference. So I started doing daily moves in 1988 with uh, both beef cattle and sheep. And I've largely been a move them every day. And this is in a productive environment. Uh, I'm a move move them every day person. Um, on rangeland, before I moved west, because everybody said leaving there, them there for, you know, a month or six weeks was fine. I believed that. And as I lived in the western rangeland environment and worked with that more and years went by, uh, now on rangeland, you know, I'm kind of a five five to seven days is the length of grazing period that, you know, I like to allow on rangeland, so uh again, time management <laughs> that's been my focus for forty five years
0: yeah, no, thank you for that. I feel like there's some there's always some danger in attempting any universal guidelines, and of course, as you mentioned, the dilemma on rangelands is that to do something like a daily move. You have to have the infrastructure to support it, you know, electric fence uh, plus water. And oftentimes the per acre profits won't support the infrastructure. We may be getting around some of that now with, with a virtual fence, but you still got to have water somewhere. And I would say, I may be getting ahead of myself here, but I feel like one of my observations is that you can't get away uh, from from this issue of, of time even more than timing On rangelands, in that uh, you know, you mentioned a minute ago that that the the conservative or the conventional wisdom on grazing rangelands is that if you have a conservative stocking rate plus some effort at animal distribution, uh, that's going to be sufficient. And as you likely know, that that debate still—I don't know if it rages, but it, it at least simmers within the rangeland academic community. But I would say that my observations that aren't backed up by anything quantitative is that when you have grazing periods that are longer than, I mean, if somebody asked me off the top of my head for a number, I would have said, you know, 30 to 45 days. Once you get grazing periods that are longer than that, it doesn't matter how big it is or how small it is or how many animals it is. It's probably going to end up, you know, regrazing plants and causing some damage and causing soil disturbance and, and pressures that probably aren't, sustainable. But on the other hand, we can't totally get away from stocking, rate. That's still a, you know, how many animals for how long and where is still a a primary grazing decision. And I want to say, was it, was it Bud Williams who said, I've seen lots of ranches with too many cattle, but not very many with too much grass?
1: Yeah, but, Bud always said something like that. Bud talks about having three inventories to manage, and those are uh, your grazing resource, capital, and then the livestock that you have. You can never have too much standing grass. You can never have too much capital, but it's very easy to have too many livestock. And, you know, the pride and joy of most ranchers is, you know, their their livestock. Right. And so they focus on that more than um, the... Uh, forage resource and capital management. Another thing that Bud said is um, ranchers love cows and they hate grass. They try (laughs) to get every cow that the fence will hold and get rid of every blade of grass within that fence. So, yeah. Coming back to the stocking rate, Uh, the idea of protecting the resource with a conservative stocking rate is where our range science um, uh, industry has been, you know, for a hundred years. And we do not see a lot of healthy range necessarily at the, um, at the end of that. And I think the, um, what I've come up with is the easiest explanation of why short grazing periods are important is because if we think about what is happening to the plants and the soil, during the actual grazing period, mostly negative things are happening. We're removing leaves, which diminishes photosynthesis. We diminish photosynthesis, that shrinks the root system. It also reduces the direct flow of uh, energy to soil microbes. And the only time that compaction can occur on the landscape is when livestock are actually present there walking around impacting the soil with the hoof. Mm -hmm. And so we strive to minimize the number of days during the active growing season in which those negative things are happening. If we look at the recovery period, and I always say recovery, not rest, because recovery has to happen during the active growing season. If we look at the recovery period, mostly positive things are happening. So logically, it makes sense to minimize the number of days that negative things are happening and maximize, in this case, I'll say optimize, optimize the number of days in recovery. And what we have found, is we can use time management to protect the resource as effectively, or in my view, more effectively than what just the conservative uh, stocking rate will do. And in academic research, we sure don't see, you know, very many results that support that, but I think it's the nature of how Research gets constructed. In case studies of ranches, we see uh, lots and lots and lots of examples of rangeland improving while stocking rate has increased when the ranch changes from a spatial based management focus to a time based focus. Now, um, there's not an unlimited you know expansion capacity uh the the environment in which we live still sets the maximum carrying capacity that we might achieve, but it is our grazing management that determines how much of that potential we capture and the reason this this becomes so important now is um I'll say 40, 50 years ago, the relationship between land cost, cowboy cost, and the value of the livestock on it, we could get by with conservative stocking rates 40, 50 years ago because of the economic relationships. Today, because even rangeland costs so much and the upkeep of the the salary and the tools that a cowboy needs – have gone up uh, proportionally much, much more than the value of our livestock. We have to get more out of every acre these days in order to survive on the ranch. Um, The the days, in in my view, um, the days of using conservative stocking rates to protect the resource base it's not our optimal solution anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Uh, that sounds a bit like some rules of thumb that Floyd Reed has advocated for some time. I don't know if you and Floyd ever met. Well, we like did. You yeah. might have. Okay. Yeah. For some reason, the way that he said this made it memorable. And so I've repeated it quite a few times, But but he liked to say that there are several uh, I want to just think through some grazing rules of thumb here and we can analyze them. His were that he thinks work in nearly any plant community. Uh, you've he, he would say you've got to defoliate the primary forage species moderately. Uh, rule number two is don't be in the same place at the same time every single year, changing the the season or timing of use and allow plenty of growing season recovery before regrazing. I'm hearing a fair bit of that in what in what you've described, uh, but it also seems to me that these things are also, you know, if you're obeying any one of them, it also gives you some resiliency against another one. Like if you know, if we're doing a five day uh, a five day grazing period on rangeland, you could afford to come back to that spot at the same time next year because you've had such a massive amount of recovery time.
1: Uh, yeah, the, the the three principles, you know, that you said, um, you know, that uh, Floyd um, advocates. Yeah, that's exactly the same sort of thing that we're talking about. Um, before I moved west, you know, I, I've all my career, I'd heard this, you know, take half, leave half as a grazing principle. And I thought that was universal, universally applicable on rangeland and after living and working out here in the west um i've learned that 50 utilization is excessive in very excessive in many of our semi-arid semi-arid settings and so in all of our grazing planning with clients and stuff and what i teach we have a sliding scale of uh maximum seasonal utilization target based on what the uh, forage production level is, what the annual growth is, and so that, that moderate level of utilization, you know, if we were, if we were thinking fifty percent, we don't even get to a fifty percent utilization level until the plant community is producing in excess of two thousand pounds per acre.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, now I where we live here in Central Idaho. You know, a whole lot of this country, the annual production is four to six hundred pounds. Yeah. And in that setting, you know, 25 to 30 percent is our maximum utilization target. And um, 15, 20 plus years ago, you know, I would have thought that was a extremely conservative position. And surely we can do more than that and what i have learned is in these rangeland settings what you leave behind is more important than what you take off because we're never going to build any litter cover we're never going to improve the water cycle if we don't leave more residual forage behind and uh, what what i have observed here and you know what i have found is it's a whole lot easier to leave that appropriate level of residual behind with shorter grazing periods than it is with long grazing periods and a very conservative stocking rate. Um, When we have the longer grazing periods, the likelihood of having certain areas that are getting grazed excessively While other areas are underused, uh, it's far more likely. And of course, a lot of the reasons we have these long grazing periods, you've already alluded to, and that's the lack of stock water availability out there. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've done a lot of infrastructure projects uh, throughout the West from, you know, four to six inch rainfall environments to, you know, up to 20 inch rainfall environments. And most of the time, if our um, AUD per acre yield potential is greater than 10, or if you want to put it a- AUMs, if it's more than 0.3 um, AUM, if that's what the yield potential is, we can generally get a positive return on investment from stock water development. If the base productivity is less than 10, Um that's and and, you know, I'm working with a rancher in that kind of environment, and he wants to improve uh range health and grazing effectiveness and all that. And we do cost-benefit analysis on everything that we do. And if it says it's not gonna pay, that's when I say, Hey, have you ever thought about moving to Missouri? (laughs) Right. Because there there are some environments out here that may be um in, in today's economic climate, we are just not going to make ranching work.
0: I think that's right. In, in fact, I think this is some of what's driving the at least the conversation, as well as some experimentation in virtual fence right now. Uh, I'm involved in several large-scale grazing projects around Washington State, and in many cases, uh, as I mentioned in an episode with Karen Launchball and some other folks talking about principles around virtual fence a little while ago, you know, some of those fences that are now not repairable, like they've they've propped them up, stretched them out for literally nearly a hundred years. And now they're at the point where, where that uh, hardware is no longer viable and they're looking at complete replacement, not just maintenance. And the cost of that is, you know, so far above what what the land could pay for uh, that people are saying we have to do. We still have a need to distribute animals and control time and timing, uh, but we're not going to be able to do it with barbed wire for sure. Uh, do you have any any thoughts on on some creative methods of controlling that? I mean, one obvious one that I think we see coming back is is herding uh, people using large enough groups of animals that that it that there's enough money in it to pay for someone to actually run them around like you would a herd of sheep. I'm curious what else you've seen or if you have some ideas on, on how we do that, because a lot of these people are not going to move to Missouri.
1: Right. Bo- boy, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> so, let, let, I'll talk about the virtual fencing first. So, I'm in ongoing conversations with uh, three or four of the virtual fencing companies, uh, we have some clients uh, who are using virtual fence. And uh, the biggest uh, fail point right now from the conversations I've had both with the manufacturers of the product and the users is we have a 85 to 90 percent compliance rate, which means 10 to 15 percent of the animals do not get trained to the virtual fence system and are not where they are supposed to be. Now, if you are on your own private range land and using virtual fence and 10 to 15% of your animals are not where they're supposed to be, it's not a big deal. But on public land, if those 10 to 15% are in areas where they're absolutely not supposed to be, uh, you're going you a to, problem. you know, get yeah. You're going to get a citation for trespass, and yeah. there's going to be a fine to be paid. Uh, some of our uh, neighbors who are in various uh, environmental or even anti-grazing groups, they are going to capitalize on those fail points, and we have a problem now. Technologically. I would like to think that they're going to come up, the manufacturers are going to come up with uh, more effective control uh, mechanisms to reduce that non-compliance. Uh, there's also, maybe as a rancher, we could should consider uh, non-compliance a callable offense because any cow who's non-compliant probably is going to teach her calf to be non-compliant. So we have this generational flow of non-compliance. And so if you are a public lands grazer and this is a real issue, uh, either the non-compliant ones become a herd that stay on your deeded property mm-hmm. or they go down the road. Uh, but uh, I, I do think there's great potential in virtual fencing as a tool. And it is going to improve. And I'm going to continue to work with the uh, um various companies and ranchers to try to solve some of these issues now yeah that go ahead go ahead
0: i was just going to mention that was uh, that that idea of culling animals that don't respond well was something that jay smith mentioned in a recent interview about their experience uh, working with joel yelich and um, the the group there at the u of i cummings research station Uh, namely he said you can often tell which ones are not going to respond well to the virtual fence signals in the training period before they leave the house and and don't take those to the mountain.
1: Yeah, I, I've heard exactly that. The same response from some of our clients is um, you can tell at the corral, you mm-hmm. know, when you're just processing cattle, uh, who's probably going to be a problem up there? Because if you got a bad attitude in the corral, you're probably going to have a bad attitude on the mountain, too.
0: Yeah, and I think the data on animal distribution, uh, again, as, as Jay said, and other people have mentioned who have been using this, the information on where animals go and which animals go where, uh, is especially on large landscapes where you oftentimes only have a a, uh, a loose grasp on that, is really valuable data. Oh yeah. In in terms of you know being able to. Maybe the cow does use the collar relatively well, but, but she's also the one who never leaves the creek bottom. Uh, mm-hmm. That, too, might be an animal that you don't want to send back out next year.
1: Right. Um, I, I, I've worked with several ranchers um, around the West, uh, large operations, who once they started observing uh, animal behavior and they could separate their herd into hill climbers and bottom dwellers, Uh, They basically started culling uh, bottom dwellers out, you know, whole cow lines. And usually it's a matriarchal uh, component of a herd that just stays in the bottom all the time. It'll be an old cow, her daughters or granddaughters, great granddaughters. It's a generational thing. And so they culled entire cow lines based on how they were using the landscape, and converted their herd to, you know, be predominantly hill climbers. Seben livestock in um, near um, uh, Adelmont, Cascade. Yeah. Yeah. Cascade, Adel area. Mm-hmm. Real good example of some people who um, uh, have done that. OK, um, if we can s- switch gears and talk about herding. Um, so Glenn Elzinga, of Alder Springs Ranch. Uh, a lot of people have, you know, heard of uh, Glenn Elsinga. Some of them uh, have actually gone to on some tours and things. So Elsinga's do, they do certified organic grass-fed beef. Uh, they have a product that does come from rangeland, but they are a forest service permit. I think it's uh between the Forest Service and BLM, I think it's nearly 40,000 acres. And they do 24-7 herding up there. Initially, they started doing it for wolf management because uh, because they're in the grass-fed beef business. Their animals have real premium value to them and they could not afford the losses that the wolves were inflicting. So they started herding 24-7. And then they transitioned from just doing it as wolf management to actual grazing management and focusing um, on keeping their herds moving and never grazing in the same area twice and uh so the herders usually there's three individuals up there with a herd of I'll say you know three hundred animals and Glenn. You know, he's very good with his accounting and cost benefit analysis and with the premium value of their animals. He thinks it's cost effective um, for a herd of 300 to have three people up there and their crew rotates out. Um, I don't remember if it's a weekly or biweekly basis. Um, And then he's looked at the numbers if these were just commercial cattle and then i know some other operations that do uh herding on commercial operations and it ends up being about 800 head you know if it's commodity cattle uh you need at least 800 head in the herd to justify the cost of herding so that's that's kind of a financial uh benchmark there and i'm wondering tip have um, have you heard of alejandro carrillo from chihuahua in mexico
0: I've heard the name, but I've not run into him.
1: <clears throat> okay, so at Las Damas Ranch, which is a mid twenty thousand some acres, um, they do daily moves with a herd, uh, typically a you know couple thousand head in a herd. In their productive country, uh, they do use electric fencing to manage the grazing. But they're rougher country. Um, it's all done with herding, and the positive impact that they have had on their plant community. And they're, I think, they're they're over ten years doing this now. Um, the improvement in the plant community is tremendous, um, and their their animal performance has gone up. Their carrying capacity um, has gone up, and I think. Um, as a guest on your program, uh, because he really is the art of grazing, the art of range management. But uh, talk with Alejandro um, would be a real uh, interesting for uh, your listening audience, I believe. I've been to that ranch twice, um, and it, it it is truly amazing. Uh, what they have created, you know, in a eight inch rainfall environment in the middle of the Chihuahuan Desert.
0: Wow. You know what? I'm reminded now that I did run into him. I actually had the chance to go to the Australian Rangeland Society meeting back in September, and he was one of the speakers. And we did, we visited for a little while, and I had, I was just drawing a blank on that name. Uh, we yeah. did talk, and I'm glad to hear you say that that's working because. You know, sometimes these these talks that are given by ranchers, where they're saying, you know, we've transformed the place. I think people sometimes feel like there must be something missing there. You know, they're peddling some snake oil, or the climate, you know, gave them more rain or something. Uh, But but certainly, it it appears to be a pretty significant. Transformation from what was, and actually, I just finished reading Dan Daggett's book, "Gardeners of Eden," you bet. and he describes some pretty similar situations in the desert southwest, where they're mm-hmm. working with extremely low precipitation and sort of unpredictable seasonality of precipitation, uh, and and where some, I'm saying, intensive grazing management has made a world of difference.
1: Yeah, we we see those uh, examples. Uh, Here in the U.S., Um, I've done a fair bit of work in Australia. I've seen it in Australia. But um, as probably the top pick ranch where I've seen the greatest impact in what I would call a really reasonable amount of time uh, would be Alejandro's Place in Chihuahua. It's Hmm. amazing. And there's actually a group of about a dozen ranchers in that area that are doing the same Sort of things that Alejandro is doing, um, and you know, I've, I can't say that they're all equally impressive, uh, yeah. but they're all a step above, you know, what's the general condition uh, in the neighborhood.
0: Right, and part of what Dan Daggett is getting at, I felt in the book, is this do nothingism that says if you just walk away from the land and let it do its thing, it's going to. It's going to return to some uh, idealized climax state that that maybe is only in our heads, uh, but that that doesn't actually work out very often in the real world.
1: No, no it doesn't. So the, the Samurai Valley, where we live here in central Idaho, from the um, 1890 into the 1960s was really a lot of sheep here. And there's an area. Um, on what the area that's actually called the samurai mountains which was all sheep grazing permits um, you know in the 30s 40s 50s 60s and that land was degraded by overgrazing from sheep Uh, back in that era there's been very few sheep there in the last you know 40 to 50 years and that country um, you know is still markedly Degraded compared to uh, areas that did not have as uh, heavy sheet pressure as that area did. And so, uh, yeah, that and, and there's work also done at the Jornada, Jornada, um, you know, uh, rangeland mm-hmm. research facility, um, where there's been total exclusion for, I guess, 80 years now. And no, it did not just transform back to, uh, you know, healthy rangeland conditions. It is with the total of absence of grazing. There's been less progress on that land healing than where they have been doing conscientious grazing management since uh, the creation of the station. Mm -hmm. But in terms
0: of the court of public opinion, people react to the kind of grazing that caused the damage a hundred or more than a hundred years ago. I think it was in Nathan Sarah's book, politics of scale that he traces some of these problems, even to economics more, more than bad grazing management. I, you know, back in the late 1800s, there was this, uh, you know, financial speculative, um, fervor and cheap credit that allowed people to buy, to borrow money, to buy more cattle than they had any business getting into, and then throwing that out on Western rangelands that appeared to be an inexhaustible resource. And then some of that got continued. Uh, I still think there's probably some bad rules of thumb and I want to ask you about that in a minute, but I'm curious if you have any any greater knowledge than, than what I've just related about the history of of overgrazing from the late 1800s.
1: No, you're 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 pretty well on target there. I I would add that a lot of that speculative land ownership uh, in the West here uh, prior to the uh, the Dust Bowl and the, the the Taylor Grazing Act, things like that, um, was landowners in the UK, Scotland, and uh, Britain buying this land here now they were also invested in the textile mills in the uk and a lot of them had never been on the land here they put sheep here for wool for their textile mills and they just kept pushing 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 for more and more sheep more and more wool mm. with no idea of what it was doing to the resource here uh. and then finally it all collapsed um with the with the uh droughts of the 1930s, but also remember that the demand for wool uh, also collapsed around World War II when the armies of the world transitioned away from woolen uniforms to cotton and then to uh, 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 non-natural fibers where where we are now in uniforms. Um, that collapsed the wool market, and then not to also mention the lamb consumption market. Um, World War II was the turning point in wool consu- excuse me, uh, lamb consumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my dad was one of those people who ate too much kangaroo or mutton or something
0: in <laughs> World War
1: II. That until we started raising sheep, my wife and I. Um, In the early 1980s, my dad had not put a piece of sheep in his mouth from 1945 until probably 1984. Wow. Because of his disgust with what, you know, in the army fed lamb that wasn't lamb. And there's a whole generation. You look at the per capita consumption of lamb uh, pre World War II versus post World War II. You know, and it's a, it, it's, a, it's a collapse. So the sheep did their degradation in the first third of the 20th century. And then when both the lamb and the wool markets really dropped off post-World War II, uh, sheep numbers finally uh, trended downward. But the, the foreign ownership of land out here, the high demand for wool, through the uh, uh, first three decades of the 1900s. That's what set up a lot of land degradation here in the West.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. I do want to go back to one of the comments you made uh, right at the beginning, and that's related to my, maybe this will be our final question, we'll be coming up against an hour. But uh, you mentioned that uh, that cattlemen often want to get to every blade of grass. And uh, I have had a, a a theory, I guess, just based on observation out. I live in Ellensburg, Washington, you know, we're a little bit like your part of Idaho where nearly everybody's got some irrigated pasture and then you've got some version of rangeland or, you know, mountain forest ground. And so you've got these, you've got these contrasts in plant community types with a really productive irrigated sod-forming grass types with a, a maybe not a ton of grass species, but uh, certainly rhizomatous and productive. And then adjacent, you've got stuff that's, as you said, 500 pounds to the acre, maybe a little bit more than that once you get up into the forest. Uh, but I've wondered, is this how the West was lost in that many of these Guys that came out West were obeying the old adage that a grass plant's goal in life is to produce a seed head and the cowman's goal is to prevent it from doing that. And which, of course, that works pretty well on a sod forming irrigated or otherwise rain fed plant community like we have in the Midwest where that that stimulates. Vegetative reproduction and more tillering, and the plants aren't dependent on seed production for reproduction, and so it works out all right. Uh, but if you prevent perennial bunch grasses, especially in semi-arid areas, from ever producing seed, and, and I think this is my question, uh, I have it has looked like that the main problem was that you know you had annual relatively severe defoliation and always in the late springtime because that's, you know, from an animal husbandry standpoint here again, trying to protect the animal um, from an animal husbandry standpoint, it makes quite a bit of sense to match the nutrient demand of the cow. And if she's a, you know, late winter calver, then you've got animals trying to, you know, rebuild body condition for rebreeding and, she's lactating. You want to match that up with the natural nutrient supply of the plant community. Uh, and so we we grazed it hard in the springtime. Uh, how much How much of that, so I'm saying that that, that rule of thumb to uh, stimulate the plant by preventing it from going to seed and grazing aggressively enough that you make sure that sort of happens every year using the same thinking on semi-arid rangeland and bunch grasses as we're using on rhizomatous sod-forming plant communities that have more water. Um, I've attached some of that damage to the, the timing and the severity of defoliation. And I'm wondering if it's mostly the severity and the failure to observe you know, that primary rule that you mentioned that you've got to have this minimum residual uh, left behind.
1: Um, You're you're exactly right. Um, We can go all the way back to, um, you know, the early colonial days in America. Uh, There is a a culture of farming and grazing in the uh, very temperate uh, Western Europe maritime Region of the UK, the Netherlands, uh, the west coast of France—all that uh, people came to this country in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, coming from a lush, very forgiving environment of Western and Central Europe. Right. They first they first settled in the very lush and resilient Eastern U.S., progressed into the Midwest. And so culturally, there is centuries of the philosophy that you talked about on how Mm -hmm. to manage grazing in a temperate, forgiving environment. And yes, they moved progressively west into drier and drier, drier environments, trying to do exactly what they had been doing and their ancestors doing in these uh, non brittle environments of Europe and the Eastern US Um, and the severity of grazing to try to prevent seed head production, the lack of recovery time, you know, for our our bunch grass sagebrush communities is what has turned so much of the Western landscape into cheatgrass, Medusa head and really annual forages. It is that Eurocentric uh, mm-hmm. Grazing philosophy that
0: that worked for half of a millennium <laughs> yeah
1: yeah it, yeah, but it, it absolutely does not work here except on the the irrigated land and uh, i've learned so much uh having the opportunity to work with both center pivot irrigation and desert rangeland grazing since I moved out here um, which is v- Two environments very different from the Midwest where I grew up and had my you know, academic career. Uh, I'm confident based on what I've learned in this Western environment that I could go back to Missouri and increase our productivity and carrying capacity by another 40 or 50 percent above what we were doing. And we were already more than double the stocking rate what conventional wisdom said you could do in our county in Missouri. Um, it's all about water management. And we have, or I'll say water cycle management. And most of that that Eurocentric grazing practices that we applied in the semi-arid rest completely broke the water cycle. And uh, that's what we have to fix. I always say in that the highly productive environments Our chief focus in grazing management is capturing more and more and more solar energy. That is our goal there is maximize energy capture in a productive environment because the water is gonna be there. In the West here, our first focus on rangeland has to be how do we improve the water cycle? We don't wanna focus on maximum harvest of photosynthetic energy in the dry land like we do in the wetland or uh, wetter country, we have to focus on what do we need to do to improve the water cycle. And the first step there is we got to increase our willingness to waste grass, mm-hmm. to leave stuff behind. To We have no hopes of rebuilding this landscape if we don't m- get a more functional water cycle working mm-hmm. on millions and millions and millions of acres.
0: Yeah. And to some people that feels like leaving money on the table, but it's putting money in the bank.
1: That's exactly right. Uh, You know what? One of the things that I say is what you harvest or what you utilize pays your operating costs, but it's what you leave behind that pays your overhead costs. Because Hmm. what you leave behind is what builds the productivity of the land and allows you to pay you know, salaries, land payments, utilities, insurance, taxes, all of those fixed cost stuff. Um, We gotta have healthy land to be able to pay that. And too many people within our industry are only focused on harvesting every blade of grass so that they can try to cover their operating costs. But in the long term, it puts them in a deeper and deeper financial hole because Mm -hmm. it lowers the productivity of the ranch.
0: Yeah, and it seems that one of the other big differences is that there's a dramatically shorter growing season in much of it. at oh. least once you get to the west side of the Rocky Mountains, you know it might be ninety to 120 days when you've got both soil moisture and mm-hmm. soil temperatures that are supporting plant growth.
1: Yeah, our our real rangeland growing season for for our BLM for our desert range here, it's 45 to 60 days. That's all mm. it's going to be, and as you move up the mountain. Uh, the growing season starts later and ends sooner, so it's forty-five to sixty days up there, also. But it's very; it can be very productive, you know, up at the higher altitudes. In that forty-five days that it does grow, um, down here on the irrigated land, uh, we can, especially since the falls have been getting warmer and warmer and warmer. Um, I think we got about 140 growing days on irrigated land, and we're at about 6,000-foot elevation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm going to make one last comment here because I was just working on this last night and this morning, and that's looking at the relative cost per AUD based on rangeland productivity and you know what fair market value of rangeland around here is now. Uh, versus uh, irrigated land. You know, there's a lot of people who think, oh, irrigated land, that's way too expensive to graze cattle on. You got to have them out there on rangeland. On well-managed irrigated pasture, all cost per AUD, is about half of what it is on rangeland. It's yeah. way more affordable to run cattle on irrigated land than it is on the rangeland. And that is awfully hard for a lot of ranchers to, you know, accept that concept. But that's, mm-hmm. uh, you know what, the num- and I've looked at this a number of times, but it's fresh on my mind because I was just doing those calculations for somebody um, earlier today before we got on this.
0: No, I think that's, uh, I'm saying, I think that's probably right. You're the one that ran the numbers and you've got a few decades more experience than I do. But I would say that matches with uh, what people that have been doing it for a long time can can feel. In fact, I think some of that's even baked into the low cost of federal grazing permits. Uh, I'm not an expert on this, but Neil Rimby and some others uh, have run those numbers, you know, lots of different ways. And uh, that's one of the reasons why they have been cheaper is it's in recognition of the fact that the cost of operation on these large, less productive landscapes is significantly higher per animal unit day.
1: Yeah, and and some of the costs we have to factor in, so, yeah, we have wolves here. Washington State, welcome to wolves. Yeah. Um, the, the ranch that we were on up until uh, last spring, uh, usually five to 600 cows going up on the forest permit, 15 to 35 calves lost every year to wolves. That has hmm. to be factored. That financial loss has to be factored into the cost of operating on that landscape. And then, if you have cattle out of place because somebody from a particular organization opened a gate and let them into an area where they weren't supposed to be, and you do get a trespass you know fine on that, that gets factored into it. And depending on situations, um, many ranches I've worked with actually find that their public land grazing is their highest cost per AUM because of all those other costs above just the grazing permit. And it makes you less and less interested grazing out on the forest.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it sure does. Uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up here, but I wanted to give you a minute to talk about the the grazing school that you've been doing for some time. I know quite a few guys from Ellensburg that have been to that grazing school and uh, it has definitely made a difference in their thinking and their management and their, uh, enthusiasm for the business, which is worth quite a bit. Uh, say a bit about about the your grazing school.
1: Okay. Uh, I'm going to start out saying in 1990, we started doing a three-day grazing school program at the University of Missouri, and it was very successful. Um, it's for that reason that Chad Cheney, who was a, a University of Idaho extension educator in um, uh, Butte County, Idaho. He Mm -hmm. had started a similar program in 1994, and then I got invited to come out and teach in the uh, Lost Rivers Grazing Academy, uh, put on by University of Idaho in 1997, and I've been doing it ever since. Um, That is the main reason we actually moved to Idaho rather than somewhere else in the West was the grazing school. So we Mm -hmm. do this each fall in September. Um, near San, on, on a ranch near Salmon, Idaho. We do it on a uh, uh, private ranch, uh, Eagle Valley Ranch, that has implemented uh, most of our grazing management recommendations uh, over the last uh, 20 years. Uh, we limit class size to uh, 24 students. And as you said, there's been a number of people from the Ellensburg area and Washington. Uh, most of our, our, our attendees come from um, Washington, Oregon, uh, Nevada, Utah, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, we limit it to uh, 24 students. It's a four-day program. Uh, there's classroom sessions and field sessions. One of the things that makes uh, this school fairly unique, and we did the same thing in Missouri, is we actually split the students up into teams and in field exercises Uh, Each team gets a pasture area and a set of cattle. We give them grazing assignments. And we then uh, the following, it's a 24-hour assignment. The next day we go look at and talk about the results. And, you know, in almost all of our evaluations, what comes back is people's favorite part of the school is the field exercises and that you don't learn anything any better way than actually doing it yourself.
0: Yeah. For sure. Uh, and, and we'll put a link to that Lost Rivers Grazing Academy in the show notes for this episode.
1: Great. We appreciate and
0: that. You bet. And I think we'll close out there, uh, Jim, I want to thank you for your time. You've been doing the art and science of grazing management for a long time uh, and I'm I'm thrilled to visit with you and uh, be able to share some of what you've learned uh, with people all over the country.
1: It, it was fun, Tip, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.